Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I was thinking the other day about the saying that within seriousness, there's little room for play, but within play, there's tremendous room for seriousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's really through the act of serious play that wonderful ideas are actually born. Carrie Mae Weems is one of the most influential and generous contemporary American artists. She's as devoted to her own craft as she is to introducing other artists into the world. Her photography and diverse visual media have won her numerous awards, including the Rome Prize, a MacArthur Genius Grant, and four honorary doctorates. She was even named one of the 100 most influential women of all time by Ebony Magazine. I'm Helga Davis, and welcome to my conversations with extraordinary people. On this episode, we explore the struggles artists must maintain to find balance and reach an audience. How the field cannot advance without the deep and profound inclusion of Black artists and what the concept of grace means in her family. And I want to start by by telling you what happened on the subway here. I sat down on the bench where there were a few people sitting on the bench, and I was waiting for the R train. And a train was in the station. Everybody rush, 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 rush. And... The doors closed and I couldn't get on. And so I sat down on the bench because I wanted to see which train was leaving the station. So I leaned a little bit to the right. And immediately, the woman sitting next to me grabbed her purse and put it in her lap. And so I saw that it was the end train, which would have been express and not the subway, not the train for me. Um, and I just began to laugh in this kind of hysterical, hmm. uh, this isn't funny, but I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to balance this with my joy. And my joy is coming here to speak with you. And having to negotiate and to find balance between the events, uh, the the, the transitions in life, and the present moment. And the thing that I love about the subway and that I love about the bus is that it actually gives me time to make those transitions so that when I arrive wherever— I'm headed, I can actually really be there. I don't know what it is yeah. about the subway, but I, I get to do that with that passage of time and in that place where so many other things are happening. And so I, wanna, I want to start to speak about balance and like pick any kind of balance <laughs> you wish <laughs> to, to begin to speak about. But let's see where we go. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for for having me 
it's really a pleasure to be speaking to you. And uh, and I'm sorry about what happened on the train today on your way to the station. You know, it happens to me often. And I think that sometimes, oftentimes, laughter is the best thing that you can do. And it's born out of a certain kind of understanding of tragedy. Mm. It, mm. That's really what it is. It's both... Mm. Um, understanding the tragedy of, of, of the circumstance, the misunderstanding and the projections onto you mm. and who you might be and the presumptions about who you might be and, um, and a presumption about who they are in relationship to you. Mm -hmm. So um, I find that this happens often to me as well. And uh, at this point, it's, uh, it, it rolls off my back because I know that it really has so little to do with who I am and everything to do with the assumptions of others about who I might be. Mm. The other day, I actually went to the theater and um, I had actually a VIP pass. But when I walked in, I told the person that I was there to see the test screening of a film and she said, oh, okay, well, you need to go over there. So I went over there and I showed that person my VIP pass. And he said, oh, you need to go back over there to the same woman who had actually sent me mm. to the long line. Mm. And then she immediately said, oh, okay, yes, you need to just, you can just go on in. But that, yeah, that sense that she didn't ask me. Mm who I was. She didn't mm -hmm. ask me anything about being a VIP or what line I should perhaps be in. Mm -hmm. It was simply an assumption that she made. Mm -hmm. She was actually a woman of color. But all throughout my experience in getting into the theater, there was this assumption all along the way by everyone I encountered that I was not a part of the VIP crew. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know, it's like, okay, right? You know, I could do an analysis of this, but actually I'm, I'm just here to see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just here to like weigh in on that. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I struggle with balance and I think about it often, but I struggle with balance. I think that really time is, has, has accelerated in an extraordinary way that all of the technology that is available to us at this moment uh, encourages speed, whether mm. it's through the multiple emails that we receive or the texts that we receive or the Instagrams that we receive or the Facebooks that we receive and all of it, you know, demanding our attention now. And everybody's speaking um, faster and faster and faster and faster because mm -hmm. nobody really has the time to really assume that the person that's listening has the time to actually listen to yeah. what's being said. Yeah. And so a part of my work is trying to figure out uh, in the deepest possible way how to find the balance between sharing the ideas that I'd like to share with the larger public and taking the time necessary not only to develop the work, but then to deliver the work in a way in which it can be absolutely and hopefully um, understood with a certain kind of precision. Mm -hmm. And so that I'm looking for that balance between the head and the heart 
and the physicality that comes with what happens when you slow down and what happens when you breathe and what happens when you're allowed to reflect. All of that takes a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so that even in the sort of difficulty and the, the tumultuousness of creating a work which has all of the, you know, many different qualities and characteristics to it, right? Mm -hmm. That at the end of the day, you're trying to touch someone and touching someone, including yourself, mm -hmm. really takes an enormous amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so time and balance, of course, are intricately linked with one another. And so I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to work with that and uh, giving myself, I think, also the, giving myself the, the space, mm -hmm. giving myself the space to know that uh, one of the most important things that I can do after really working hard and pushing hard uh, is to relax and to take mm -hmm. um, very deep breaths. Uh, mm -hmm. between things so that I can, so that, so that you can actually get the work done, right? Mm -hmm. You can't really even get your life done if you're constantly on top of it, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, you know, uh, for me in part, uh, an important aspect of finding balance in my life and in my work. Would you say that this has been true all along? Talk a little bit about your early career what was that experience when you first began? I suppose in a real way, I started my life and my, quote, career thinking about and considering what other artists were doing. Hmm. And so from a very young age, I've spent a great deal of time, almost every morning, almost every morning for the last 50 years, has been spent looking at, thinking about, reading, digesting what other artists are doing. Mm. And other artists help to ground me. They, it helps to ground my practice. And it takes me out of myself and into the larger world of making. How are other artists, musicians, writers, poets, you name it, how are they responding to the world? Mm. How they addressed uh, this in a in a very particular way. I even look at artists that I don't like, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, because there's a lesson there too. There's a lesson yeah. there too. So yeah. so being able to spend time with other artists is really important to me, and it also helps me to understand and to know who some of the artists are that I might want to work alongside of at some point mm -hmm. in my life. I'm often thinking about collaboration, as you know. So, you know, so my life has really, has really been, been that, and I really continue that practice, even when under pressure, when under great pressure, I usually go back to um, writings, uh, for, for, for instance, the, the writing of Toni Morrison, Mm -hmm. who I've read on my knees. I mean, I've read passages so extraordinary that the mm -hmm. only thing I could do was drop down to my knees and say, mm -hmm. thank you, my sister. Thank mm -hmm. you. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when I'm in crisis mode, it's really uh, that time that I think I'm able to really step back 
not to not to continue to quote push at the work, mm-hmm. but rather uh, gather around me the echoes of wonderful artists, uh, artists in my life um, who I deeply admire, who are incredibly influential to my way of thinking, and I continue to do that. Even today, I was up early this morning uh, looking at uh, some work by Daoud Bey, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about his practice and the way in which he's made his most his his latest body of work and the importance of that. Mm-hmm. Other artists helped me to see myself more clearly. I think of it as a kind of love, mm-hmm. a love affair. Mm-hmm. And what is it that you? What is it that you were seeing in these early photographs? Uh, what was your eye attuned to? What were you trying to do with your work then? Oh, probably the same that I'm trying to do now, mm-hmm. which is, you know, just, uh, you know, like I'm just, you know, probably like most uh, artists, uh, serious artists, who are really in search of a certain kind of truth as they understand it. And uh, uh, I always think about it as sort of, you know, this crawl towards my humanity, trying to really understand uh, all of my complexities. And so when I'm going to work, I remember, you know, the first time I saw, for instance, um, the Black Photographer's Annual, this really beautiful volume that had been developed by this, uh, published by uh, Joe Crawford, Joe Crawford was a, a photographer himself, but also a publisher and a, a curator of sorts, and uh, brought together these extraordinary artists. I was probably about 18 when I first saw the book, 1820, no more than that. And uh, my boyfriend rushed in one morning, or one afternoon, woke me up from a nap and said, look this. And I remembered that sitting up in bed and we just sat there for the next hour or so, just just leafing through this book mm. of photographs, mm-hmm. of images made by people like Roy D. Carava, Sean Walker, Buford Smith, Anthony Barboza, Ming Smith, just um, work that seemed to get at the truth of who we were as a people and what we offered as a culture. And I thought that uh, upon seeing that, I thought, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to live. And this is the thing that I'm going to go after. And uh, it was a great moment. And so taking that, using that, I started talking about all these other artists. I would do all these lectures and talks about other artists and what they were doing. If I, you know, if I was invited to speak at a museum, I was coming with, you know, 200 slides, you know, at that time to to show people what this work was, who these people were, and why they were important to the field. And that also positioning yourself inside that field as well, yes? Or no? Um... That wasn't um, at the top of my mind, uh-huh. but that is actually what happened. Okay. Right? Mm-hmm. It was really in paying attention to all these other artists. And then people were saying, she's kind of onto something here. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. People started giving me more and more space to, to do that. 
And then at one point, a curator called me and he asked me if I would mind showing. He said, you're a photographer too, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am, but that's not why, why I'm here. And he said, well, you know, I think it would be really wonderful to, to share some of your work. And I said, yes, but that would be rather bold and pretentious that, that I would use this forum <laughs> to talk about me. <laughs> but mm. these other artists are clearly mm. so much more important. And so, but but eventually he con convinced me to do this thing, and I, I showed a few uh, images at the very end of my presentation, and I showed them very quickly. And uh, um, but from that 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 beginning um, was a space that um, that that was opened for me. But I've never wanted to be in that space alone. I've always wanted to come into the spaces that I come into with my friends and my colleagues and people that I believe who deserve a certain kind of recognition uh, who haven't received it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's been my way then of really broadening uh, what the field is and how the field is understood around um, black image making because it is complex and deep and vast and very little understood. So for the last 30 years or more, 40 years, I've really been presenting a lot of the work that I think is really um, critically important for the public to understand, for curators to know about, for museums to embrace, for collectors to buy. Anytime I'm working on a project, anytime I'm working with a museum, um, I'm asking, or a gallery, I'm asking a number of questions about what it means. Mm -hmm. And in part, I ask those questions because I want to understand their motivation. Um, and sometimes I'm asking those questions because I want them to understand their motivations. Because sometimes their motivation may not be absolutely clear, mm -hmm. right? It may mm -hmm. not be clear. And so a part of that sort of interrogation, it's like the interrogation of work is that you're asking the same thing. What is the intention here and what is to be gained out of this relationship? And, and do we want the same thing or different things? Do you lead me or are you attempting to lead me down a path that dissipates or are you leaving, le leading me into the abyss? Or is there something else that is more constructive and productive that can come out of this relationship? And so mm -hmm. my sense is, that we have the ability to the extent that we can be honest and bold and bodacious is to <laughs> interrogate those on the other side so that they are clear about their intentions and that they are clear that we know what their intentions might be. And so to the extent that a gallery might represent any number of black artists, I'm really trying to understand who's collecting it and why they're collecting it and then what they plan to do with those collections going forward. And to the extent that they're interested also in expanding the field mm -hmm. is to the extent that I'm interested in working with mm -hmm. them. So, so, it's, so yes, it is transactional, but it's not necessarily nefarious. Yes. And it can be worked with. And I think my job is to sort of crack open these points of contention so that we might move to higher ground. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I've, you know, I, I think about you often, and uh, 
I'm curious about your practice and your work and what it is that you want now as a, a mature woman working in performance and music and theater. What is it that you want for yourself now as you go through this next phase of, of life and work? More than anything, I would like to keep saying yes to things, whatever they are, in, in whatever form they come. So to stay out of the what-do-you-do box mm. and do the things that I'm curious about, do the things that make me leave everything I have wherever I am. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it may be in a song, it may be in a film, it may be in a poem, it may be something I compose, it could be, it may be in a conversation that I have. To to leave that thing, whatever it is, and be completely spent. And without having to diminish or put aside or box. I use that word so much mm-hmm. uh, because I, I, I feel that there's so, there's so much of that, that whatever you do or... Do you think that you're put in a box? I mean, in part, of course, it's, it's a fair question, right? Because, you know, what is it that you do? And what is it that you care about doing? Is, is, I think, a really a valid, a valid question of exploration. I was on, you know, uh, um, a phone call with uh, Yo-Yo Ma, and uh, we're going to be doing a, a project together. And um, he kept talking about the Kitchen Table series. Mm-hmm. Well, the Kitchen Table series was made like, you know, 35, almost 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know. Talk about a box. Right? Well, you know, because it's the first way that I became known. It's mm. the first way that I became known. And many, 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 many people know that work first and foremost. And try as I might, I can't seem to get away from this body of work. And in some ways, nor do I want to. But a part of my dedication and commitment to my own self is to explore the range of possibilities in terms of how to create a work, Mm -hmm. whether that is um, a set of photographs or a performance piece or a video piece or an installation or whatever it is, but to be really given the space and to take the space and the time that I need to make this work. When I wake up in the morning, my question to myself is, how am I going to get this done? Mm. How am I going to organize my day so that I can work on this project? How do I say, not, you know, yes, but how do I say, no to the onslaught (laughs) of material that's coming at me so that I can actually reserve that space for myself. Because if I give it all away, I won't have any left for the work that really matters. You know, I've been making these these little um, boxes. Hmm. I have on my 
my my my projects and i have these these sketches mm. sketches for my projects mm-hmm. and 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 everything goes into like a box and then i start making the lines and the threads that then connect um each box to the next so that i can actually oh. see um, graphically for myself where things actually land what's connected mm-hmm. You know how th- this project is connected to this project. What oh. part of this 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 project A is connected to project B? That's connected to project C. That's right. You know, and it's mm-hmm. really it's 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 this just this way that that I have. It's like you know constructing these little islands of thought. You mm. know, where each project is its own thing, but mm-hmm. each project is also deeply connected. And mm-hmm. um, and doing it uh, is just really wonderful. Sometimes I then you know sort of take them all out and then I put them all on separate little pieces of paper and then I <laughs> start composing like a kind of collage out mm. of them. Well, mm-hmm. along with you know key phrases and words and you know little notations that I think actually make sense that that I need to play with. Mm. I was thinking the other day about this saying that within seriousness, there's little room for play, but within play, there's tremendous room for seriousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's really through the act of serious play that wonderful ideas are actually born. You're listening to Helga. We'll rejoin the conversation in just a moment. Thanks for being here. The Brown Arts Institute at Brown University is a new university-wide research enterprise and catalyst for the arts at Brown that creates new work and supports, amplifies, and adds new dimensions to the creative practices of Brown's arts departments, faculty, students, and surrounding communities. Visit arts.brown.edu to learn more about our upcoming programming and to sign up for our mailing list. I'm Terrence McKnight. Join me for a new season of the podcast where people tell stories about the classical music that shaped their lives. I'm Tom Hiddleston. My name is Natalie Joachim. I'm Marin Alsop, and you're listening to The Open Ears Project. You're going to meet some incredible people and maybe, like them, fall in love with a piece of music. The Open Ears Project. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And now, let's rejoin my conversation with the visual artist, Carrie Mae Weems. When you wake up in the morning, in the wee hours of the morning, right, tossing and turning, what are you, what are you, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you trying to resolve? I think very resolve? much the same thing. I think very much the same kind of thing. What do I need to do? How do I need to be organized in order to say yes to the things that I really want to be doing? Mm-hmm. And part of what I have had to do is to leave some projects, things that I love, uh, uh-huh. people mm-hmm. I really, really yeah. love. Because mm-hmm. when I'm done with that work, I have absolutely nothing left. 
to do the things that I'm interested in. Well, I've seen you perform, so I <laughs> I see you work. <laughs> When I see you work, my sister, it's like, okay, you know, like I can, I can watch your legs. I can watch your legs jiggling, you know, I can just see this adrenaline coursing through your body. You know, you are so intense. You are so intense. It's really kind of a, you know, amazing to, to watch you in such a you know, phenomenal voice and presence as uh, your project that you did actually with uh uh, with um, Claudia Rankin mm-hmm. at the um, at the Park Avenue Armory, a part as a part of my convening, was just a knockout. Mm. Your reading, your delivery of that work of her words uh, was really quite quite extraordinary. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I mean, I think Claudia's writing is really made for who I am. Um, It's made for my body. It's made for my spirit, my psychology, (laughs) for my voice, really. So it was definitely an honor to be there and do that. I I didn't know that you were were friends, that you were Mm. old friends, that you went to school Mm -hmm. together. So we were at Williams together. See, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I'm just finding this out now. This is wonderful. Yeah, we were we were there together and um you know, we had very different friends and very different uh paths there. But uh I have a friend who says you don't make friends, you recognize them. And uh I recognized Claudia very very early in my time there. And so that is a relationship that is is one of my fundamental relationships mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. when you talk when you were speaking earlier about uh things or people or situations that bring you back to yourself yeah. she's definitely one of those people for me you know i was wondering um something else about you because of course you've worked so so many years with robert wilson and I think that you still do occasionally mm-hmm. um, work with him. But in terms of your own practice, what is it that you most want to work on now? Is there a way that you want to work now? And I sort of asked this before, uh, and you responded with, you know, that with, with, with all the possibility of yes. But I think that I'm really sort of asking, maybe I'm asking something different. And that is, how do you see yourself working? Is there something that you actually want to make now, uh, that you want to have space for and room for, um, that you don't yet have? There are two things that I'm I'm definitely working on. Uh-huh. One of them is a reimagining of of um, Langston Hughes's Black Nativity. Oh. And this piece is called Unto Us. And it examines the son of man, and that's the S-U-N of man, and his knowing, he knows how it ends. And so what he's asking of his father in this moment is, is why? And he's, he's saying to his father, 
I want to do what everybody else is doing. I want what everyone else has, and that is the ability to choose. And so I'm not so sure I want to die for these people. I'm not so sure I'm interested in in being their savior or their lord. Mm. Mm. And so that feels for me, like a very powerful question to ask of someone who in our culture and in our society and and in societies all over the world hold this position of what he did for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And what happens on the morning when he wakes up and he says, I'm I'm actually not sure I want to do this. <laughs> to walk that walk. Father, yeah, do I have to? So sure. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece is a retelling of the Cassandra myth that works with her encounter with the God and the the outcome of that assault on her. And what her, and she too is asking, is is there a different choice that I can make? Do I have to bear the the child of a God? And what does that even mean if if it if this child has come to me without my consent? Mm. So these two things feel like very, very important issues for me in the culture because I know the power of choosing. Choosing means you can you can go in fully. Oh, how wonderful. How wonderful. You know, I love this idea of uh, the notion of choice, being able to choose. And uh, sometimes, of course, you know, the ability to make a choice uh, takes years mm-hmm. because you have to understand at a certain point uh, in your process, what the choices are, mm-hmm. right? right? <laughs> and uh, you know, and 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 the and the threat of, of and the threat of making that choice. I mean, you know, I made all of these choices as a very young person. I left home when I was sixteen. Wow! I left home when I was sixteen. My father said, "Yeah, what? where are you going?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, I think." I think, I think, he said, well, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to move over here. And, and he said, and you think you can move over there and you can pay your rent and mm. you can pay your gas bill and your water bill and buy your food mm-hmm. and you have money to get back and forth to school? And I said, yeah, I think, I think so. Huh. And he said, well, Carrie, if you feel that you can, you are certainly welcome to try. Mm. And if you can't make it, you are welcome to come back home. And so I left home when I was 16. And and of course, I come from uh, an enormous family, a very tight-knit uh, family in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I am only one of two or three, the only woman, really, to leave home. And uh, some of my family really held it against me for a long time, that I would leave the 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 fold the, the tribe mm-hmm. the fold and the church and all mm-hmm. of that implied because I come from a very religious family as well that I would be out here on my own 
in a in a different part of the country in another state doing what I do. She said she, she, she's some kind of artist. I think. I think she's some kind of artist. You know, I don't know what that girl doing, right? And then. And uh, and uh, and I dreamt about it. I dreamt about it over and over. I had a recurring dream. Where I was always trying to get back home. I was always trying to get back home. And um, and one afternoon, I think it was I think it was for my birthday, maybe my my twenty third, twenty fourth birthday, something like that. My mother called me. It's about two two three o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, you know, Carrie, I just want to say, I just want to let you know that I wish I had done with my life what you're doing with yours. And wow. I cried. She cried. That was probably the most important phone call I've received yeah. from my family. Yeah. That you, you are doing the right thing. You are now an example for the young people in our family. And we are grateful that you were bold enough to step out. We didn't always know what you were doing and wanted mm -hmm. to do. But we get it. But we get it. So it was a great, it was a great phone call with my mother. It was a great encouragement yeah. um, and a foundation on which I could then build the rest of my life going yeah. forward, knowing that my mother had my mm. back, that she was proud of the decision that I had made uh, to do this mm. thing and to live a certain kind of way that uh, was a very non-traditional in every conceivable way in relationship to where I come from and my family background. I think it's such a beautiful story. And I think I shared with you the other day that my mom is just in a very different uh moment in her life in a kind of transition. And my brother and I, as she likes to say, her first and her last are mm. the ones who are around her. And I don't think my mom has ever really understood what I do or, you know, she said she would always say to me that, oh, so-and-so called and said, where is Helga? And I had to tell them, I don't know. I know she's somewhere. And okay. It's like, but mom, I called you and I told you where I was going. And and so That's that's her way of messing with you. That's her way of messing with you. It's just 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 messing with me. Right. That also has something to do with communication. Too. Oh, indeed. It has something to do with a certain kind of communication. Indeed. I know that that's true. Yeah, I deal with the same thing with my mother, too. <laughs> <laughs> but one, one gift that she has given me during this period actually came yesterday. So she's going in and out of a lot of confusion right now. She doesn't always know where she is. Um, and she said to me, can you come tomorrow? And I said, no, mom, I have to, I have some work I need to do tomorrow. Hmm. And she grabbed my hand 
And she said, yes, go and do what you got to do. Go and do what you got to do. And I, I don't, I've never heard that from her before. Mm-hmm. This sense that, that she, she knows that there's something I do that I have to go and do. And she said, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Um, and in that same way that you are speaking about having then that foundation on which to go out into the world and do your work, I am receiving that now from my mom at what I understand to be the end of her life. And it's a very, it's, it is still a very powerful thing. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. You know, and, 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 you know, talk about choice, right? Going back to these ideas about choice. And every day we have to make these decisions about, you know, what we're going to do and how we're going to act in the world. And I can say that there are choices that I've made that I'm not always proud of. And sometimes they were the wrong choice to be made at the time that I made mm-hmm. made that choice, right? And a part of dealing with um, the complexity of ourselves is in knowing when to choose. Knowing when to choose. And I'm wondering, Olga, about this idea of choice. And it sounds to me as though that that idea, the idea of choice, is almost a central theme in your thinking. Is that is that true? That is true. And I think in part, it comes from from my mother's own origin story. She says that she met my father when she was 14 years old. He was 24. And this is on the tiny island of Nevis in the British West Indies. And that he saw her in the yard hanging clothes. And because this this island is so tiny, it was very easy to figure out who her parents were. And her father was the sheriff of the town. And so my father went... Hilarious. Isn't it hilarious? And my father went to her father and essentially said, I want her. And that was it. It was done. And, you know, a year later, she they had to wait till she was 16. But the choice had been made. And I remember hearing this story from my mom, and I kept saying, but didn't anyone ask you what you wanted to do? <laughs> mm. <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a different child, right? I said, what, what do you mean? He, he just, he, he went to your father. What right did he? And I went on my whole <laughs> tirade. Mm-hmm. And I said, didn't anyone ever ask you what you wanted? Right. Of course, of course. And she said, no, no one ever asked me. And so I think in part, this is why this thing has come up 
in part because of where she is in her life and in part because of the opportunities I now have to bring this forward to people and to also let it rise in me and make something that is part of the healing yes. of those choices that were taken away. My mother is also aging. And uh, for the first time, just recently, I saw her as an aged woman, you know? And, mm. uh, and I'm thinking about her a lot. I'm thinking about what she means. And I'm thinking about what she brings to me, mm -hmm. the gifts that she brings to me, the language that she brings to me. I have these wonderful conversations with my mother. She's not my, um, she's not my girlfriend. Right? <laughs> but um, but she is a friend to me. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I ask her all kinds of questions. Mm. And she'll say, you know, Carrie Mae, you ask me questions. Don't nobody else ever ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and you can just, just say, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, I am curious and I want to know. I'm curious yeah. and I want to know. But the, I, yeah. I think, that, you know, perhaps the, the most important conversation that we had the last few years has been a conversation around grace. I was working on a project called Grace Notes, um, and um, and I was struggling with the meaning of grace. And I called a whole bunch of people, asking them about grace and I, oh, the meaning of grace. And uh, then mm -hmm. I read, um, you know, several books about grace, and <laughs> none of them seemed to answer my question about, you know, what is grace? What is grace? Mm. And finally, mm. uh, one morning I called my mother and I recorded our conversation because I actually wanted to, I wanted to keep it and hold it. And, and I actually mm -hmm. wound up using it in my performance uh, on mm. Grace Notes, um, where she talks uh, about grace. And, and again, she said, you know, uh, and she's a religious woman. She goes to church mm -hmm. every Sunday and maybe on Friday and Monday and Wednesday, right? You know, she's always <laughs> yes. in church. And she said, you know, nobody has ever asked me that question. Nobody's asked me this question of what is grace? Mm. And, and this uh, took us into uh, maybe a conversation that lasted for about an hour, hour mm. and a half or so of really just unpacking this idea but these ideas and notions of, of, of love and compassion and patience and unrequited love, right? You know, mm. was, was really sort of at the core of, of, of grace for my mother. And I thought that she nailed it um, beyond all of the philosophers, beyond my pastor, mm. beyond mm -hmm. um, the priests. It was my mother and her own deep thinking about the role of compassion in a life and how you offer that and extend that to others, that you extend the compassion and empathy of humanity to all around you, regardless of who they are and regardless of what they think about you, is the act of grace. So that your laughter this morning at the woman who grabbed her purse when she saw you, your laughter was your grace moment. Mm. 
Because otherwise, you could have slapped her upside her head. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Some days Martin, some days Malcolm. (laughs) You know? You know? And so that ability to laugh it off Hmm. and to laugh at the situation gave her an extraordinary opportunity that you didn't have to give. Hmm. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Loyola. All right, my sister. Peace. Peace. That was my conversation with Carrie Mae Weems. Thanks for listening. I'm Helga Davis. Join me next week for my conversation with sociologist, podcast host, and director of the Center for Study of Race and Ethnicity in America at Brown University, Trisha Rose. Hip-hop became a global phenom. It outstrips country music in terms of profit. And I begin to see that hip-hop is vulnerable, for lots of reasons, to being mined for the kind of voyeuristic desire. So where things like deep systemic racism and violence, instead of seeing them as the context within which these amazing heroic people come into being and try to survive, we instead say they are the pathology we've forced them to live in, and we just want to consume their natural pathological state. To connect with the show, text HELGA to 70101. And we'll send you a link to our show page with every episode of this and past seasons, transcripts of my conversations, and resources of all the artists, authors, and musicians who have come up in conversation. We'd also love to hear from you. So drop us an email anytime at helga at wnyc.org. If you want to support the show, please leave us a comment and rating on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And as always, thanks for listening. Season 5 of Helga is a co-production of WNYC Studios and the Brown Arts Institute at Brown University. The show is produced by Alex Ambrose and David Norville with help from Lucy Jones. Our technical director is Alan Gofinski, and our executive producer is Elizabeth Nonamaker. Original music by Michelle Ndegeocello and Jason Moran. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer at the Brown Arts Institute, along with producing director Jessica Wazilewski. WQXR's chief content officer is Ed Yim.